You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations and companies, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. Now, if you're a fan of this podcast, thank you for being a fan. Or if you have feedback for us, either way, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Brock, Communications Director at the National Committee for Quality Assurance, or as you know us, NCQA, and your host for this inaugural edition of our new podcast, Inside Healthcare. We expect to interview movers and shakers in the healthcare space working in all types of ways to improve care. That's the voice of NCQA's former Director of Communications, Matt Brock, on the inaugural episode of Inside Healthcare on September 13th, 2017. Since that day, this podcast has covered many topics important to quality healthcare in the U.S., and I'm proud to share this day with all of you, the 100th episode of Inside Healthcare. For our century retrospective, I want to showcase the developments of two critical areas of quality that are now pillars of NCQA's work, health equity and health digitalization. And as you'll hear, like so many things in healthcare today, these two are inexorably intertwined. For each topic, I'll take you back to 2021, when this podcast was just entering the discourse. We'll hear clips from three interviews per topic to examine how these topics have evolved from thought to action. At NCQA, for example, we created two health equity accreditation programs, and we're incorporating measures that address population health disparities into some long-standing products that will be released later this year, 2023. As for digitalization, NCQA continues to champion and promote interoperability improvements using FHIR standards as the base. We'll also touch on person-centered outcomes, value-based care, value-based payment models, and hospital at home, all of which are at the forefront of NCQA's work right now. First up is health equity. We start in October 2021 with a co-interview, NCQA healthcare analyst Kirsha Thompson alongside certified doula Latasha Rouse, both discussing the basics of health equity. And as you'll hear now from Latasha, one of the first steps in solving equity gaps is to realize you can use data you already have to resolve existing issues. You have social determinants that people focus on and have been for a few years. We've had disparities that have been persistent forever. But now the the lens has turned to people realizing that you have to combine social determinants and racial equity to get to health equity. And that has been, I think, the big push for in the maternal infant world for infant mortality and maternal mortality was a huge um, moment in this movement that made everybody go, hold on. It's time to think about how 
this impact is. So seeing the stories of the people who have gone into the hospital perfectly fine and not left. Um, for people who went in for a simple repair that didn't come back out to their families. Um, and all the way down to people who go in to a hospital that don't quite speak English well enough to be able to communicate in a way that is effective and not realizing that there are services that are available or that there was something else that they should have been doing to take care of themselves um, so that they didn't have to go back to the hospital. Um, so many different ways that this really does shape the work. And so being able to focus in and narrow in on those populations, it means that as a whole, the improvement will trickle to everybody. Because if you can get this part right, the care for everybody gets better, the numbers for every organization gets better because the people who need it most are being affected and impacted in this work. So what really happened was over the past year and a half, you know, we've seen, I think, across the nation of um, more of a spotlight, you know, shedding a lot of light on this idea about um, advancing health equity in whatever ways we can do so um, across the American healthcare system. And so I think that really got a lot of folks, um, you know, my colleagues within NCQA and I to really start thinking more um, transparently about how we can really tackle this important issue within our healthcare clinical quality measures specifically, which is a lever that we use to obviously increase the quality of care. And so what we did, which I think was really fun, we um, began working with this whole um, expert work group full of experts from across the healthcare system who are um, basically a bunch of big names in the community who are interested in advancing health equity, whether that's through, um, you know, being a patient advocate like Latasha here. She's part of this wonderful group and very amazing to work with. But also, you know, she's worked with us, with community-based organizations on this group, um, health plan leaders, um, the government, et cetera. So it's been a really interesting uh, way to see different folks come together and put their heads together to tackle this issue. So in the work that I've been able to do in maternal child health, in um, pediatrics, I have absolutely seen that when people focus in on um, disparities, they move the needle. And it is usually going into it, they don't think that it's going to happen. But once they do start working on it, they have seen the shifts and having it be at a higher level, at the health plan level, um, you know, it means that it's going to continue. Um, and so the examples that were given in the article are prime examples um, that are outside of the maternal infant health world, but it means that this work is transferable. It doesn't matter who's doing it, it works. Something that I, I work at, whenever I, I see people, is, um, you know, this is not a shame or blame. This is a how do we improve? Um, and so we understand that the systems need updating. We understand that the way of doing things need updating. In order to get there, we need everybody to have their own numbers because what can happen is it is very easy to say, oh, but not here, not our people. We don't. Um, when actuality, if you have been around, you know, national level, you realize if you look at all the numbers, obviously there are some challenges. So let's boil it down, get our own numbers, work in our own demographics, 
in our own populations to make the improvements. There is no shame in this. This is only how do we make it better. This is solution-focused work. It's going to be work. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. There can be improvements made, and any improvement is, a, is an improvement worth having. We can do better than what we're doing, and that's all we really need to focus on. We absolutely have to make sure everyone is stratifying and using that information to work on quality improvement in their systems, in their organizations. That is a huge step. After that step, there's so many things that can be done depending on what the needs are. But looking at your population and knowing who they are and what their challenges are is the most important part. Next up, we hear from Dr. Lisa Cooper, who spoke with us in December of 2021. A pioneer in closing persistent gaps in healthcare equity, Dr. Cooper founded the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Equity and sits on President Biden's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Here she talks about the journey to health equity and considers both person-centered outcomes as well as the continued need for clinicians to focus on patients instead of numbers. The efforts that have been made to understand um, healthcare delivery or to improve patient outcomes have really focused on technical things um, such as whether or not people received a certain medication or went for a specific type of uh, medical or surgical procedure, looking to see whether the practice of medicine is, is following what we know to be the way they should practice it based on the evidence we have. So, but, you know, the reality is that in order to get those tests done or to go for those procedures, that there has to be some interchange between a health professional and a patient and, and their family member in, in many cases. And it's really that interpersonal process that really drives um, the interaction and drives the decision-making of both parties. And therefore it really shapes whether or not people end up following through on recommendations or even getting the care they might need. So it's really important for us to not think about healthcare as only something technical, but it's really something that requires a lot of interpersonal interactions. Really, it's like the art of medicine as opposed to simply the science of medicine. You know, the model of healthcare used to be much more what we call paternalistic. You go into the doctor and they know what's best and they tell you what to do and you you do it and you leave. Well, things have changed because we have uh, people that are have access to a lot of medical information now. And there are a lot of people who have doctors and nurses and other health professionals in their family. And so they're not willing to simply be a passive like recipient of care. They actually want to be more actively involved. They want to ask questions about things they've read about. And so I think healthcare has moved, shifted much more to an egalitarian model where, um, you know, you could call it basically some decades ago, it really was this move towards patient centeredness where uh, the medical profession and, you know, nursing other health professionals became aware of sort of the, the centrality of the role of the patient and how care really ought to be sort of organized around and responsive to patients. So I think we've seen more of a shift in that. You know, that may not be true for all groups, though. You know, so there might be older individuals, for example, who still sort of subscribe to the more traditional model. There may be people who have less education, who feel less comfortable speaking up and advocating for themselves in those settings. 
And then we have, you know, people of color, African-Americans who have experienced discrimination in so many settings um, in society who may sort of come into healthcare settings expecting not to be treated well or respected well and therefore actually um, be more hesitant about speaking up about what it is they need. Dr. Lisa Cooper describing the breakdown of communication and trust between historically underserved patient populations and their doctors. As we mentioned many times on this show, reaching true equity requires rebuilding that trust. And now for a last look at health equity in this century episode, here's a bit of my talk with Dr. Darrell Gray at NCQA's first Health Innovation Summit held November 2022 in Washington, D.C., Dr. Gray is the first Chief Health Equity Officer for Elevance Health. Many companies are adding similar positions now, as well as DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Departments. I asked him about being the very first person to hold such a position at his company. Dr. Gray explains how these efforts must include what we often call baked-in policies. More than just creating a diversity expert position, Healthcare entities must incorporate equity into everything they do. It's very easy to say, well, what product are you going to offer that is a health equity product, right? We're drawing our line in the sand and saying, regardless of the program, the, the product design, the offering, the benefit, we are integrating health equity on the front end of designing that. Uh, because, like, I, I think back to, I think it was Dr. Paul Batowden who said it first, you know, every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. And so we are designing for the results that we want to get, which is achieving health equity. It's it's almost like the most universal, what do you call it, SDOH kind of, <laughs> yeah. we've been talking about person-centered outcomes. Yes. And not person-centered oriented, out, no, person-centered outcomes, which means, for example, somebody walks in as a patient, walks into an office, and they're the patient. Mm-hmm. They are not the receptacle for your wisdom or your uh, prescriptions or whatever. They're yeah. the, now, they're the patient, and if you want to know what they need, you should start be asking them and qualifying. You might not be able to get into one question, yeah. but you need to ask them and you need to qualify them. Uh, in order to find out who that individual is and every single factor that you can think of, yeah. whether they're social determinants or whether it's, you know, just talking about them as an individual and their background. Absolutely. But guess what? Even before you can get to that point, mm-hmm. you have to have a relationship, right? So you think about, you know, I, you, you and I both, I think about patient-provider relationship because I've been a provider. I've been at the bedside, but I've also been in community. And before we can have discussions, meaningful discussions, or a meaningful connection to be able to provide actionable uh, impact, it starts with a relationship, and that relationship starts with trust. And so, certainly as I think about our approach to advancing health equity, it, it starts with that. We want to be a lifetime trusted health partner. That is incredibly ambitious. But that means that in everything that we do, we have to be thinking about, like you mentioned, that person-centered care. How do we approach the person the individual in a way that they prefer, in a way that resonates and communicates, and in a way that's humble, that approaches them with cultural humility throughout the interaction. Tell me a little bit about working with uh, local groups and working on a community basis, maybe even on a city basis. You know, what you said is critically important, and I don't want to kind of skip past your message around mistrust. And 
you know, much of the mistrust of the healthcare system is well earned because we in the healthcare system, I, I, I include myself and peers in it over year, this, over decades, over centuries have not been trusted brokers um, as we think about communities, as we think about patients. And I think certainly we have made strides over time to be a more trusted broker of health and we still have more work to do. To your point, I think it's not just about the message that we want to bring and share with communities, uh, having that reliable message uh, amidst, uh, as you mentioned, I think you said a panacea of disinformation or misinformation, um, but it's also having a trusted messenger. And so that's where partnerships are so meaningful. And whether that is partnering with a community-based organization, a faith-based organization, we have to identify and partner with those trusted messengers. And, you know, I, I, I think, you know, part of also what you're mentioning that I don't want to kind of skip past as well with this is that it is most often those who are in communities who are most proximal to the inequities or the problems who also have the most innovative and impactful solutions. And so as we think about um, how we get to health equity, it is definitely by engaging with community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, and other trusted messengers uh, to, to help us to partner better in co-designing solutions with those whom we serve. And so uh, remind me again your title with Elevance Health. So I get to serve as Chief Health Equity Officer at Elevance Health. And who had the job before you? No one. <laughs> and when did you get the job? August of 2021. Okay. So without getting into details about yes. Elevance Health itself, um, this is uh, indicative of a change. Yes. It's a train. Yes. It's not going to stop. It's, and it's, it's a wonderment, and it does involve a lot of work, yeah. a lot of work on a social level of people realizing things have to change all the way across, just like you were saying before. Yes. Tell me about your own career track. Yeah. Um, and what led you to this point? I mean, academically, what led you to this yeah, point? Yeah. But also, what what led you to the point of feeling like you were prepared for a position like this? Uh, and really, I wanted to be talking to other people who might have a similar background and would yeah, yeah. be interested. There are not... Right now, there aren't not that many chief health equity officers yes. or chief equity officers, and as there will be in the next couple of years, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we need to figure out who's going to be the pool mm -hmm. to to choose from, and those people are out there. They just they might not know a lot about yeah. your kind of position and um, and what they do. So tell me about you and your background, and what you think led you to a position like this. Yeah, and two, I think your point is well taken. You know, there has been an emergence of chief health equity officers. And it is in response to a need. It is, you know, what I've noticed, it is not just kind of fluff or talk and people just being put, you know, having titles put to their name. Companies are really committed to action and seeing change. And frankly, it's, it's very much more than a social and moral imperative, which it is. It is also a very much a business imperative. If you want to be impactful as a company and serving members, there needs to be a health equity agenda and not just an agenda, but actions. And so as I think about, you know, my career, that trajectory that kind of led me to this place, I'll be honest, if, if you would have asked me, David, when I was, I don't know, 10 years old, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if you would have asked me, you know, I don't know, just a few years ago, if I would have envisioned myself as chief health equity officer um, for a health company, um, 
I probably would have told you, no, I don't envision that. But and it wasn't because I had any disdain or dislike or, or, or for that. I just didn't necessarily envision that being my pathway. And I'll say I'll be I'll be frank and transparent with you. I, I feel this one thing has built upon another and I have been led in this direction. And this is part of my um, I feel my purpose and, and I'm really enjoying it. But the, the kind of milestones, if you will, along the way, um, you know, I, I pursued college with a love for sciences and a love for community engagement. And that kind of materialized more into me going into medical school to learn how I could apply that love to a better knowledge of the science, a better knowledge of, of human anatomy and physiology, how to uh, identify and treat and manage illness. But as I did that and, and started to find my way into kind of my niche where I could, felt as though I could make an impact, which kind of materialized in gastroenterology. I'll say candidly, at one point I did want to be a cardiologist, but I saw the light in gastroenterology <laughs> and, and really in impacting, particularly as I think about those impacted by colon cancer. And, and I can talk for days about colon cancer and those populations that are disproportionately impacted. But what I recognize, David, is that um, I also had some knowledge gaps kind of getting there. And my knowledge gap was bringing that public health and health policy lens. How could I translate a small program in a city of St. Louis where I was, a patient navigation program, navigating people from the community in churches specifically to getting primary care and then getting specialty care for colorectal cancer screening? How could I translate that from a small city program into potentially something that can impact a nation? Or something that resonates with policymakers? And that's what led me to getting an MPH and and being a fellow in the Commonwealth Fund Fellowship in Minority Health Policy. And so that led to then an academic career where I spent a lot of my time doing community-based participatory research. What that means is doing research with communities, not just to communities, right. co-designing with them, implementing with them, and then disseminating the knowledge with them, and being at the bedside. So a combination of bedside, a combination of research, a combination of community activism and engagement that's what led me to it to kind of, I feel, be equipped uh, to, to be in this role currently because I'm able to bring the lens from the bedside. I'm able to bring the lens from the community. I'm able to bring, bring the lens, the analytical lens from research um, to this work. I don't think everyone who pursues a role in a company for a chief health equity officer needs those credentials or needs those qualifications that kind of led me into this path. Yeah. Um, but I think that there has to be experience in strategy, in operationalizing strategy, in bringing vision from the point of vision to actually having impact. And there has to be kind of a, a mindset and a commitment to servant leadership uh, to, to operate in this role. Now we turn from health equity discussions to efforts to digitize health records and services, which will, in turn, digitalize the processes that operate and motivate the healthcare ecosystem. NCQA continues to set our sights on improving the patient experience by using digital means to gather, measure, and validate data. We were talking about digitalization back in November of 2021, You'll hear a bit of that now in our co-interview with Drs. Niam Yuragi and Renee Town. 
Dr. Uragi is Assistant Professor of Business Technology at the University of Miami and non-resident senior fellow at Brookings Institution's Center for Technology Innovation. Dr. Town is Director of Quality Programs for Healthcare Analytics Guru's KPI Ninja and an expert in health information exchanges, also known here as HIEs. You'll hear her refer to those. Dr. Uragi begins this discussion by explaining the need for and often the fear of standardization of care analytics. Then Dr. Town talks about the need for health information exchanges that move data through the healthcare ecosystem and help carry and parse data between health providers. It's very difficult to come up with a different data collection requirement for each physician and each unique patient condition that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, these regulators and these payers would end up going with a very broad brush and asking physicians to collect uh, a set of data that is going to be useful for most patients, but not necessarily for specific kind of patients or specific kind of physicians. Um, uh, you know, they, they, they have to find a common ground and in order to be able to implement such, uh, such requirements and regulations. And that is, uh, that is reason behind it. So let's take a broader perspective for a moment okay. that, you know, we take this electronic health data, you know, the digital health data about a patient. Um, and we have so many different standards in healthcare. So we have the interoperability standards with CCDs and HL7 and, um, you know, ICD-10 codes, Rx norm. I mean, I could go on and on. There are so many standards around interoperability, rather the exchange of the data, how the data, data is documented and so forth. But, you know, we're seeing some really positive uh, indicators, what I would call leading indicators from the industry, that we're starting to look at data quality and completeness and saying, hey, what is the utility of this data? The conversation used to be um, the data, and now it's what do we do with the data? So let me give you an example. Um, ONC recently has published their USCDI standards, which helps bring together all these different vocabulary standards. So it's really a framework upon which all these other standards can begin to live. Because before this, we were really in a muddled mess of what standards do we use, where, what value sets and so forth. But with this UCDI, organizations like ACOs, clinically integrated networks and HIEs now have this framework to start saying, what is the data quality and completeness? which just is incredibly beneficial. Now that we have this framework, we have something to compare to, to improve upon and ultimately to improve the data quality is then to increase the utility of it for value-based care, quality measurement, population health. And when we think about HIEs and their mission to improve health outcomes, um, it always seems a little bit elusive besides the core use case of using health data to help fill gaps in a patient's chart. That is a very established use case, but as HIEs are evolving down this population health path, we start saying, well, what else can the HIE do for us? How is this different than national exchanges? How is this different than you know, my own local analytics that I use internally? And so unless we as an industry can get very explicit about what are those specific use cases and how are they unique and different than others in the market, um, I think we'll continue to have to work on the utility of our data and the utility of our HIEs. So keep all that in mind that you just heard as we zoom in now to a doctor's office. While the traditional model of care holds that the doctor talks and the patient listens, 
we're trying to move the needle toward person-centered outcomes. When clinicians focus more on listening and engaging with their patients, they not only gather useful information about how patients feel and about their medical history, but doctors and staff also start rebuilding a relationship of trust with patients, while modeling for patients how to be proactive in caring for their own health. In April of 2022, Dr. Joshua Lau came on the program to talk about his studies in value-based medicine. An expert in the topic of value-based payment reform and a board-certified internal medicine physician at the University of Washington, Dr. Lau serves as medical director for payment strategy at UW Medicine. He also spoke at NCQA's 2022 Quality Talks event, giving his insights then into the benefits of value-based care. Parallel to NCQA's research and measures dealing with person-centered outcomes, value-based care and the resulting value-based payment models can ultimately hold clinicians accountable if they don't deliver effective care to their patients. While this concept may not work immediately for every office, the idea of valuing patients as the center of care can go a long way toward improving care delivery in the U.S., especially for patient populations that are still being left behind. So if we take fee-for-service as kind of a contrast and say that, um, as the name suggests, you get a fee for a service. And there's nothing inherently bad about that. I'm not saying clinicians and groups deliver care in a fee-for-service with no eye towards quality or cost efficiency or anything like that. It's just that there's no inherent accountability tied to that. If you contrast that with value-based payment, when we think of accountability, what we're really talking about is that instead of being accountable for being uh, delivering a service or doing a technical part of procedure, you're accountable for the outcomes of that care. Specifically, you're accountable for clinical outcomes, quality outcomes, cost outcomes. And so uh, accountability in that context is very concrete. And it means that at the end of whatever period and whatever value-based payment arrangement we're talking about, there will be kind of a review process. And in that process, clinicians that are in that arrangement are held accountable financially for how their patients do with respect to clinical quality and cost outcomes. At a fundamental level where fee for service really focuses on the inputs of care, what we're doing, the materials and the services we're providing value-based care really focuses on the outputs. What is the health that we get at the, as a result of healthcare, again, with respect to quality, clinical cost utilization, et cetera. And so I think when you shift to focus on outputs, you start thinking about the world in a different way. You start thinking about not just what's happening as I'm giving the inputs when that person is sitting in front of me in the clinic or in the hospital, you're thinking what's now happening and what impact can I have on what's happening when that person is not there in front of me. All right. And so, um, you know, concepts and ideas have emerged around care coordination, uh, longitudinal care management, those types of things. And really at the heart of that is to say, we really need to widen our aperture and think about people when they're with us in the healthcare settings, you know, within our four walls, so to speak, and when they're outside. And so I think the example you gave is an example of that, where we would track those people. We would have a population health management approach of saying, let's make sure we're closing the loop on vaccination, on cancer screening, on business with subspecialists, 
Now, at each of those joints of all those connections, and sometimes that leaves a certain practice, right? So a primary care clinician can do certain things as you describe vaccination, but sometimes you need care between a primary care clinician and other clinicians. And it's at that point where coordination and communication all become very important. So there are layers to this. You know, how do you coordinate care within a group? How do you communicate and coordinate across different groups and entities? And again, these are really important, but you roll it up to that really idea of accountability. And communication is nice. Coordination is nice. But when you nest those within accountability, they take on a, a certain importance, as you hinted at. So now, kind of in a value-based world, clinicians and groups are now accountable financially for both kind of the outcomes and the costs of care. One of the challenges is that if we know that certain patients in certain communities right? Because of structural discrimination or historical marginalization or other factors. If we know for whatever reason, those groups have outcomes that are harder than perhaps other groups to control. And so the outcomes are harder to achieve and it may be more costly to get those outcomes there. Now, when you shift it from fee for service input focused to value-based payment output focused, and you realize as a clinician or as a group that those outputs are harder to achieve and more costly to achieve for certain groups, that creates a dilemma potentially, right? Um, it creates a dilemma, about how are you going to do deliver care? How are you going to do things to promote outcomes and be cost efficient for those groups? So you can see actually how potentially value-based payment could inadvertently actually make it harder to achieve equity. And again, that is the, the, the heart of our message is how do we then make sure that's not happening? While wrapping up this episode, we step back for a broader view of the gamut of the healthcare world. Dr. Juan Espinoza is a pediatrician at Children's Hospital in LA, where he focuses on developing medical devices, health information systems, and patient-generated health data. The guiding principle of Dr. Espinoza's work is that data and technology have the potential to narrow the health gap faced by underserved communities all over the world. We now go to Dr. Espinoza, who explains how digitalization will affect the entire healthcare ecosystem. At NCQA's inaugural Health Innovation Summit, he was part of a panel called Digital Reshaping of the Diabetes Healthcare Ecosystem. Of course, this reshaping he's talking about, it's not just limited to diabetes. Recorded live at the summit, here's some of our conversation. When we use, talk about a healthcare ecosystem, it really includes all aspects of health, including potentially pieces that we don't typically consider as uh, as healthcare. Um, so, absolutely, it's care delivery systems like hospitals and practices. It includes payers. It includes the various government agencies and bodies that regulate and oversee healthcare that measure quality. Um, obviously, patients, and then the technologies that they leverage, but also the various parts of their their community, of their ecosystem that enable them or or in some cases, it hinder them from actually living their best healthy lives. It sounds, in a way, it might parallel somebody's healthcare journey as they're going through the system. If somebody gets diagnosed for something, and then you have to go to a specialist, you go for imaging, you go to radiology, you go to another specialist, you go to prep, you go to a consultation, um, and uh, digitalization ends up being able to follow you all the way, all the way through. 
And that's part. Of, that's what the improvements are that are needed, right? For the absolutely. I mean, we need improvements at each of those steps. And also, when we start thinking about the role of social determinants of health, it's the pieces that connect us from step one to step two, right? So if you don't, if you have trouble accessing transportation, uh, or you have other other barriers uh, related to your socioeconomic status, then how will you get to that to that uh, imaging or diagnostic suite, or how will you get to the specialist? So talk about the session. What, what did you actually cover when you're talking about digital reshaping? Uh, you're, and you're specifically talking about diabetes. I know that's, uh, that's the expertise. And yeah, yeah. But I, I think that uh, what we talked about in diabetes is absolutely generalizable to other conditions. But so our session this morning really focused on the fact that over the last 20 years, uh, diabetes has uh, rapidly advanced. The technology that we use to care for patients, the sensors that we use, the uh, the ways that we can measure patients' progress, whether it's using continuous glucose monitors, treating them with insulin pumps, um, using various wearables to be able to, to track their progress. And so the way that we define quality of care in patients with diabetes, um, it doesn't really take into consideration the fact that we are treating patients very differently now than we did two decades ago. And so NCQA has been on this journey to update uh, or refresh uh, their definitions of diabetes and their measures of diabetes care. And so the, the goal of today's session was to talk about, A, what are the health equity components to ensuring patients have access to high quality care? B, what is the technical pipeline to get data off of these advances in technology and devices? In particular, my work focuses on continuous glucose monitors. And C, how do we create new measures that captures all of that so that it can help us guide how we actually improve the care that we deliver? And improving care, ultimately, we're trying to improve people's lives. Absolutely. We, the, the goal of improving care is to improve patient outcomes and, again, help people live, live, their, live healthier, better lives. Now, I want to talk about home care, hospital at home. If services are available to them, they need to know that they can access them and that they should access them. So, uh, so we know that the increase in digital services is great, and then we also need to make sure that people realize how, how easy it can be for them to be able to access them. Patients can, uh, are able to do what we empower them and enable them to do, right? And so if we don't provide them the education, the equipment, and the support to do that, then uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure that it's fair to expect them to do that all on their own. Uh, you know, we live in this very interconnected society um, where everything from our, our education to our neighborhood to our income to our job to our race to our ethnicity impacts and impacts us and the health that we the health care we receive and the health outcomes we can achieve. Um, and so I think it's important that we build systems within which patients can thrive and be empowered to take care of themselves but we, we have to help them get there. So what are the some of the challenges that we have in terms of, in general, digitalization of health. And uh, we were recently talking with uh, another guest who was talking about how um, the technology is there. there there's so many... There, there's so many aspects of people's lives now that are not that they're governed by digital services, but they're improved and they're made more efficient and they're sped up. And it seems like the healthcare industry is way behind. 
in integrating digital services for the purpose of making things clearer and, and more efficient and, uh, and enabling people to be able to really monitor themselves and take care of themselves. So where do you think we are with digitalization now for uh, healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think the, the challenges are, are really occur broadly speaking, in four areas. So the, the first is uh, our, our technical, and to me those are, those are the easiest. In many ways, the technical ones have been solved. They've been solved by you know, consumer technology. They've been solved by other industries. And like you mentioned, we're just playing catch-up. Uh, you, know, you can do incredible things. Uh, you could buy a house on your phone, uh, and yet you might have to physically drive to a hospital to get a paper copy of your of your CT scan and your report. Um, so the, there are the technical barriers, um, which are, as I said, are in many ways the easiest to solve. Um, there's the there's some additional complexity in healthcare where there's uh, additional requirements from an information security and privacy standpoint. But again, none of these things are insurmountable. And again, solutions exist. The next. Uh, is workflow integration, right? This is new data, new technologies. So we need ways uh, for for our healthcare systems to actually use this technology. How does this become part of a regular visit? Does this replace a regular visit? How do you deliver care with these new tools? You know, healthcare, uh, certainly in the United States, has grown to be this very episodic uh, type of relationship, and digitization has the potential to turn healthcare into a continuous process, but we don't know how to do that, and we don't know how to do that well. The third is integration of payment systems, right? The Our existing ways for coding and contracting don't have great ways to capture the effort and the value that goes into the digitization of healthcare, um, and so that needs to be done better, right? To create those financial incentives, yeah. um, and then fourth, it's the, uh, the what I would call sort of equitable integration. Do all patients get access to? this digitization? Do all patients get to reap the same benefits? How do we help patients reap the benefits of, the, right. of technology? Focusing on person-centered outcomes, solving gaps in health equity, and implementing digitalization in the healthcare realm, these are all interconnected. My thanks to this episode's guests and to all of our guests over the past five and a half years for this podcast. We're grateful for the important discussions we had on this show and for the discussions to come, including important healthcare topics that we just didn't get to on this episode. Gender equity, birth equity, remote care, hospital at home, behavioral health. We will continue to explore them all on Inside Healthcare. Right now, a quick promo of our next upcoming event. You know how you go to a big convention, hear long speeches with tons of slides, you can't ask a question, you never get to meet the speakers, and then you go home wishing there'd be more to it? I, I have the antidote to those issues. Come and join us May 3rd, 2023 for NCQA's amazing Quality Talks event. Imagine a ballroom, a stage, a series of speakers one after the other on that stage whose goal is to engage and inspire in just a few minutes. And during regular breaks between speaker blocks, the speakers go to their own speaker salon, a side room in the hotel where guests can hear more from them, ask questions of them, and just network with them. Now in its eighth year, Quality Talks will be live 
from the Capitol Hilton in Washington, D.C. this year and will also be available remotely to live stream. So for more information or to register, why don't you register first and then get more information? Run, don't walk to qualitytalks.org. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask you now for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. If you're coming up empty, here's our question for this episode. What's something you've learned about healthcare in general that almost nobody else seems to understand? Think about it and then tell us about it. And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on the show, maybe you'd like to be that guest, just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. We hope to hear from you soon. And that's it for episode 100 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us for the turn of our century. This episode's done, but once again, there are plenty that came before it. There are 99, actually, that came before it for you to explore and investigate. You can find us anytime at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show or you stream it, if you find us, follow us and spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.